sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, boss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Oh my God, it's Brian. What's up? Hey, and it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We are the story guys at gmail.com if you want to jump in and get involved. I want to start the show by playing you two things, and I want you to tell me what they have in common. Are you up for this? I am. Okay. Let's do it. Here we go. Number one. All right. Can you identify that riff? It's a... American Woman, Guess Who? Yeah, there you go. American Woman, Guess Who? All right, that's riff number one. Um, tell me what it has in common with riff number two. Oh, yeah. I like, it's Homer Simpson's favorite song. <laughs> it's, it's, it's TCB by BTO. Yeah, uh, I, I love the acronyms. Uh, that makes my heart happy. Uh, yeah, so uh, BTO and uh, the Guess Who. So what do those two songs have in common? There's one really obvious thing, which is not actually what I'm going for. What's the obvious oh, thing they have in common? I was going to say... I mean, gosh, I feel like... I'm, I was going to say... Part of the riff is palm muted, so it sounds like it's a march. It wasn't a good question. It wasn't a good question. Uh, Randy Bachman. Randy Bachman is involved oh, he, in both of those is bands. Is he in Guess Who? He's yeah, in yeah. Guess Who? Yeah, he's in Guess Who. Oh, man. So I never, just because of The Simpsons, my gosh, what an idiotic thing to say out loud. Because of The Simpsons, I ended up investigating Bachman Turner Overdrive and, and learning about, you know, the just hits. And it just makes about you lovable. It. But I, ne- I, but I didn't, I've never dove into the guess who, like, mm. ever, for any reason. Right, so, um, yeah, Randy Bachman is in both. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, to be self-referential, there is also an old episode of the show that we will talk about in which we do talk some about the guess who in BTO with Randy Bachman, and uh, and it's actually about stuttering, if you remember that episode. Yeah, yeah. and I, I didn't want to just bring up the episode, but yeah, it, it's a so great. So um, it's such a great episode to talk about. There are two different bands. They do have a person in common, but more than that, those two riffs and those two songs have an instrument in common, a specific single instrument. So starting there, I just want to warn you that this episode is for the gearheads. Do you consider yourself a gearhead? No, I, I'd love to say that I am, but I'm, I'm not. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm not either. Uh, for someone's listening and they think that's like a Halloween preparation that we're making here, Gearhead, is that like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 6 villain? No. A Gearhead is someone who gets really geeked talking about the equipment that is used to make rock and roll. Maybe even more so than the rock and roll itself, right? They get really geeked about the guitars, the amps, the pedals, all that sort of stuff. Now, I'll admit that I think the reason that this doesn't resonate with me, and I'm curious if this is similar for you, is that I've never been a good enough musician for me to really know the nuances. Like, I'm not saying you're not a good musician, but I'm I'm not. I'm mediocre. And it's a little bit like coffee and bourbon for me. Like, I can tell when it's really bad, and I can sense when it's really good. But the miles in between those two places, just plug me in and let me play. So, so have you never had a pedal board? I know. I've never had a pedal board because I've never really been, whenever I've played out, I've never been a guitar player. I've been a bass player. So I learned oh, to play guitar. Right. And then yeah. I joined a band and I was the least good guitar player. And there were three of us and somebody had to play bass. So I became yeah, the bass dude. player and I played Adam Clayton bass, right? Like just doom, 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 doom. Not like yeah. Victor Wooten bass. Yeah. Or Michael Anthony bass is what I call mm-hmm. that for sure. No, um, I had, I had a pedal board and like initially it was really simple. I mean, 
And then, yeah. you know, it got, uh, at some point, I guess I had like I don't know, six pedals. I mean, yeah. it's not a lot. Um, it was really fantastic for me. My, my, one of my favorite bands of all time, Super Drag, did a reunion show and they've had this Facebook group. And there's like, it's great. There's like all these people that are 20 years younger than me that have discovered this band. And like, people came from around the country to go see them play or whatever. Amazing. And there was one post about gear. And oh man, people were in a heated thing minds. where they're like, yeah. they were like, no, they, they use turbo rats and someone's like no that's past tense previously <laughs> they use those and then someone's like those were stackable pedals and then there was a whole conversation about like how they use stackable pedals and and some of the people didn't understand that and and it was just fascinating to hear that conversation about like one of my favorite bands where i've never really got to get into the gearhead yeah. You know, to find out how they do anything, right? And so that's a great example of what I'm talking about. They, this is very important to some people to think about the very specific things that are used. I thought it was really interesting that actually, after I had written most of this episode, uh, I'm on a thread with buddies from from high school and college, and one of them randomly sent in the thread just a few days ago. Um, my dad bought me a really nice, expensive tuner when we were in high school, and now we all use apps on our phone. And I thought, you know, that's totally true. Somebody responded to that and said, yeah, we spent hundreds of dollars on guitar pedals, and now you can plug a guitar into your phone, and an app will basically be an entire pedal board. So it is interesting how technology has changed some of that. But regardless of that, I definitely know tons of people, I'm thinking of our mutual friend Rick, right, who think that a good, an instrument itself, and specifically a guitar in a lot of cases it feels like, that there can be a bond between the musician and the instrument, an emotional, a spiritual attachment, depending on who yeah. you ask, between the music maker and the tool that they're using to make that music with. It, it can really be downright superstitious. Yeah. I, I, man, I had the same guitar, owned the same singular guitar now for over 20 years that I can... And there's been time. I mean, I've had to, I've had to hawk things and pawn shops, man. And you know, you yeah. don't have any money and right. all kinds of stuff. And I've had that thing for now over 20 years, and I can't get rid of it. I, I did the other guitar I bought now. I feel like it's a magical guitar too. But, but yeah, it's like I. It's interesting that I can pick it up, and it's always in tune. Yeah. It's 20 years old, yeah. and it's like it can handle the different temperatures of the house. I can tune it down a half step; it stays in tune, and like that's. You know, I, when I got it a new pick guard, I felt like I, I took it to a plastic surgeon, you know, or get, got it some Botox. So <laughs> it had a black pick guard for 20 years and I got like one of them fancy ones. You know. uh, the other guitars think it's sexy now. It gets it gets looks and cat calls. Uh, got one of those paisley, paisley things on it. Oh, man. Wait, so back to these two tunes, right? To bring this all together. Working Randy, overtime. Randy Bachman says that those iconic riffs and many others were executed on the same physical instrument. And it was his 1957 Gretsch 6120 Chet Atkins. When I, when I say the name of that model, can you see it in your head? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. If, if you are not uh, a guitar player or someone who that immediately brings an image to you, let me tell you, this is like the classic 1950s rock and rockabilly looking guitar, hollow body, arch top, big cutaways, classic, beautiful, but I already dropped a lot of names that need a little explanation and a lot of context. Randy Bachman, yeah. Chet Atkins, Gretsch. So let's do them in that order. Now, like I said, we've talked about Randy on the show before. And since we're getting more comfortable with being self-referential, episode 53 is the episode I was talking about, rock and roll versus stuttering. Fun little anecdote about Randy making rock and roll history out of hazing his brother. Uh, but 
it would serve us here to go a little deeper on the man himself. I don't know how, I mean, do you feel like you know much about Randy Bachman? No. And I'm really excited about this because he's a fascinating, interesting rock and roll. And he's Canadian. He's Canadian. So just remember that. Uh, Okay. First thing to know about him is that he had this musical talent from a very young age. Uh, He won a radio singing contest when he was three, though. That's just a fun, random thing to know. What's more interesting for the purposes of, our story today is that he studies violin throughout his childhood at a conservatory. So he's a classically trained real deal musician. <laughs> but when he, he does what can over time, like all I can think about is Homer, Homer dancing to him like 30 years later. Uh, well, it's funny, right? So how does he make that transition? That's a great, that's a great point. How does he become the dun, 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 the, you know, bluesy, the kid from the, con- the, kid from the conservatory, to right, the right. rock and roll thing. Well, okay. So later a couple, you know, 10 years later, it would have been the Beatles, but because of his age, it's Elvis. He sees Elvis on TV when he's 15. And this makes him very interested in the guitar, but he doesn't have one because it's a different time period. So he literally practices and figures out how to play the guitar on a modified dobro. Uh Uh-uh. That's crazy. And then he meets this guy when he's a teenager named Lenny Bro. Now, not a household name in our circles, me and you, but this guy goes on to be an acclaimed jazz guitarist, and he's known for this finger-picking style. And he gets his chops playing in a legit country act with his parents. So talk about another guy who's leaving his childhood behind. Comes up as a country guy, ends up in the jazz world. But when he meets Randy Bachman, he will start showing him how to play the guitar for real. But he will also show him his inspirations, the people that made him want to learn to play the guitar. And one of the musicians who inspired Lenny Bro the most is a guy who used to play with him and his parents in their country band, a guy by the name of Chet Atkins. Oh, man. Good Lord. So, side note before we get to Chet. One of the things that makes creating this show so incredibly fun is the act of accidentally uncovering things along the way. And so, here I am, reading about Randy Bachman's childhood, reading about this guy, Lenny Bro, and I I look, when I, when I read about Lenny Bro, at his lifespan right and i notice that he died at a youngish age so like he's two years older than randy bachman they met when like bachman was 16 and lenny was 18 but lenny bro's been dead since 1984 so he was yeah he was just 43 when he passed okay so if you hear that and it's a musician what's your first thought typically cocaine's a hell of a drug (laughs) I was going to say, for sure, drugs. Well, Lenny did have a pretty destructive drug habit in the 60s, but he cleaned that up. Drugs did not kill him. There is one book on this guy. It's called One Long Tune, The Life and Music of Lenny Bro by Ron Forbes. uh, Ron Forbes Roberts. And while I couldn't find a full copy of it, I did find an excerpt of a review on a message board. Okay, so I'm just going (laughs) to... I'm just going to, I I just, I, for those of you who don't know, we're not in the same place this week at all. And man, I wish I could hug him. I didn't find the book, but I did find an excerpt with a review. Please go ahead. Go on. So this was like a legit review. This wasn't like, this was like from Penguin Random House or something, or I don't know. It was like from an actual entity. It wasn't just like somebody was like, this book sucked. Okay. One long time makes it abundantly clear that one of Bro's worst decisions, we're talking about 
this random jazz guitarist. Okay, I just want to make sure you everyone understands we're not talking about Randy Bachman. This is a weird rabbit trail, but it's totally worth mentioning. One long tune makes it abundantly clear that one of Bro's worst decisions was his marriage to a woman named Jewel Taylor in 1980. Worse still, after it was apparent to family, friends, and to Bro himself that she was an abusive spouse, physically and mentally, he magnified that bad decision by going back to her time and time again after they had separated. It proved to be his ultimate undoing. Lenny Bro was found dead in the rooftop swimming pool of his apartment building on August 12th, 1984, at the age of 43. His wife claimed that he drowned, but an autopsy determined he had been strangled and dumped in the pool. Oh. The Los Angeles police never had enough evidence to bring charges, but in a 1999 Canadian documentary, Detective Richard Aldall stated that Jewel Bro was the primary suspect. <laughs> and then it says, Jewel Bro declined to be interviewed for this book. <laughs> Match oh, that. Man. Lenny Bro's murder remains technically unsolved. Yeah. That's like one of Jerry Lee Lewis's uh, ex wives. Crazy. It's crazy. I dropped a 1984 news report on this death in the show notes. So if you want to go down that path, enter at your own risk. It's in there. By the thanks for thanks for adding that because that's it's crazy. fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. Okay. Back to happier subjects. Lenny Bro introduces his teenage buddy Randy Bachman to Chet Atkins. You know Chet Atkins. The guy basically invents the Nashville sound. Uh he yeah. makes country music a viable commercial product again. Yeah, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I remember going up to the very top and they had they had these prototypes that Chet had made mm. literally yeah of of guitars and and that was that was that was that was new to me at the time and as you know it's almost 20 years so, ago now so here's I, yeah here's the thing about about him right he first it's he's a guitarist before he is a guitar maker he gets convinced sort of begrudgingly to be pulled into the guitar making world but from his sound and his style, he takes sort of the Django Reinhardt, the Les Paul, the George Barnes, the Jerry Reed of it all. He distills it into this style. And the guy's hands are literally all over the careers of some of the biggest names in music history. Mm-hmm. Elvis, Dolly Parton, Waylon Jennings. It's a huge list. Now, I think we talked about Chet a bit on one of our Christmas episodes because this is one of the times in America where you will randomly hear Chet himself uh, while you're buying sweaters at the mall. Um. But this guy's career was wild and early, starting just after World War II with an appearance on the Grand Ole Opry in 46. He gets a record deal with RCA, and while his own work takes a while to catch on, he's making a name working with others, playing on weekly radio shows. And here's some Murdoch connection. Uh, way before you did, he lived in Knoxville, and then he moved to Nashville. Yeah. I saw him in concert once, and it was a last-minute, like, someone had an extra ticket. Yeah. Um, and he was like a benefit show and Chet did like two songs of the entire thing. He was old then or whatever. Still awesome though. And that's, and that's how I knew that he had the, that's how I learned about the Knoxville connection. Yeah. That's amazing. So in 1954, he gets approached by this guy named Jimmy Webster. Now I understand I'm sending us down these side alleys with a lot of side characters, but there's a lot of fascinating side characters in these, in this story today. Jimmy Webster is a musician piano tuner, musical member of the U.S. Air Corps during World War II, and a guy who had, even before the war, been taking on freelance work as a musical instrument, uh, like consultant, with this company that was calling themselves Gretsch. So now we're to Gretsch. 
Yeah. This company was started by a German immigrant in Brooklyn, New York, to make banjos and tambourines and a few drums in the 1880s. But by 1914, there's a son in the family who takes over the business, expands it, and by the 1950s, they, they've got a goal. And the goal is they want to pose serious competition to the leader in the guitar game, who, of course, is another company called Gibson. So, this is from a Guitar World story. It's in the show notes. Jimmy Webster, this guy who was doing consulting, uh, became more involved with Gretsch on his return from the war, but always insisted on remaining freelance, juggling three days a week at Gretsch's Brooklyn factory with two days of piano tuning. Did I hear you moved a piano today? It sure is. It's right. Yeah. Can, have you ever tuned a piano? No, but as soon as we got this one, we, we got a piano tuner, um, and it was, I mean, it was great. They had, he had a little briefcase with him. I, I have a buddy who moved pianos for a while, uh, just like you did today, and he his big claim to fame was, if you remember when the Duggars, that weird family from Arkansas, when they had a reality show, they had um, like, are they at the, did they have like 18 kids? Yeah, or some weird, yeah those people. Yeah. Uh, he was actually on that show as one of the guys moving a piano into their house. <laughs> so there you go. Um, oh, weird. Yeah. Hope maybe we can find that YouTube clip. All right. So he's doing this work for Gretsch and their Brooklyn factory. And they hold a three-day promotion in New York to launch a new range of electric cutaways to compete with Gibson. And Jimmy's role had always been special representative. And he was by then like their main demonstrator. He would travel the U.S. He would appear on radio and television. And he'd be like, let me show you this beautiful guitar, right? He was that guy. He was the spokesperson. But, yeah. But the and thing he grew is. to be a bigger guy, right? So, yes. But the problem is they're really, I mean, so their whole thing is we want to compete with Gibson. But the problem is we've got Jimmy Webster, who is a decent dude. Super cool, super hardworking, but he's not famous. And Gibson has a guy by the name of Les Paul. So what are we going to do to even that playing field? And so Jimmy says, don't worry about it. I got an idea. And so that's why in 1954, he approaches Chet Atkins. Now, I said this episode is for gearheads. So I did some digging. And have some additional reading in the show notes that you might want to check out if you like this talk about specific styling when it comes to the Gretsch. There's this Guitar World feature from a few years ago breaking down all of the different Chet Atkins models and what they have Wow, to offer. wow, that's cool. But the only one that really propels Gretsch and the one that plays prominently into this story is the 6120. So here's what that Guitar World piece says about the 6120. Chet Atkins' involvement with Gretsch began in 1954 with the 6120 hollow body, although he would have significant influence on the design by requesting the addition of a metal bridge, metal nut, and Bigsby trail piece, tail piece, excuse me, the bulk of it was already in place by the time Chet arrived, courtesy of Jimmy Webster. So Jimmy Webster, like I said, was already doing all this work behind the scenes. They basically let him come in, do a couple, move this, move that, and then take the credit for it because they think it will sell better. Derived from the Gretsch Streamliner 16-inch electric arch top, the prototype was labeled Streamliner Special and featured Gretsch Roundup-style Western motifs and an amber-red-orange finish. That's the other thing. It's a beautiful amber-red. If You you can probably picture this guitar. Yeah. Here, here's a fun fact from this piece. Although he was photographed with it, Chet rarely played the 6120. He liked the 6122 Country Gentleman. And he actually oh. he was way more involved in the... 
whole process of creating that guitar. So he preferred that one. Yeah, that's that's how I I connect him with that guitar, with the country gentleman guitar. All right. Yeah. So let's bring it all the way back to Randy Bachman. Okay. I hope we haven't. I hope I'm not confusing you. Okay. Whether or not Chet liked to play this guitar, his design and influence did exactly what Gretsch wanted. It made this guitar very sought after. Eddie Cochran, Dwayne Eddie, George Harrison were all famous uh, proponents of Gretsch. Um, and someone else wanted one very, very, very badly. And that was 18-year-old Randy Bachman. This is a quote from Randy. So I have this paper route, and I'm making like two bucks a week delivering the paper. I'd mow a lawn for a dollar. I'd babysit somebody. I'd get a dollar. I'm working at a car wash. I'd get 50 cents an hour. This is way, way, way back. So to save $400 this way was a really big deal, end quote. But that's what he does. He saves 400 bucks, the equivalent of like $4,000 today. Do you know what he was doing? Taking care of business. Working overtime. (laughs) That's what he was doing. Okay, keep going. Sorry, it's so easy. Uh, It's a layup. Teenage Randy Bachman buys himself this guitar. So this is the part of the episode where if we were in a visual medium, we'd sort of fade into a musical montage and we would watch Randy Bachman's musical career take off. And then he starts a band with Chad Allen in 1960. And by 62, he'll change his name to the Guess Who. I'm not going to do that the whole time. Uh, They'll have huge success. But he'll leave that band after joining the Mormon Church. And then he will release solo albums. He'll start a band called Brave Belt. That's right. Yeah, became a Mormon. We talk about this on the other episode, too. Uh, Yeah. He changes the name of Brave Belt eventually to Bachman Turner Overdrive. And they find big, guess who size success for a second time. And for every step of this journey, right beside him, in every frame of this musical montage we just created in our brains, sits that gorgeous 1957 Gretsch 6120 Chet Atkins guitar. It's there the whole time. And Randy Bachman does not take this guitar for granted. He knows how special it is. We talked about the spiritual connection. We talked about the superstition, the magic. He knows it's valuable. And he does get superstitious about it. This is another quote from Randy. It was with me all the time, he told NPR. I literally slept with this guitar. Weird question. Two weird questions. Have you ever slept with your guitar? No. I've fallen asleep. <laughs> hold on. It's, I've, hold on. I've fallen, I've fallen asleep with headphones on yeah. playing an electric guitar. Stroking it gently. And then wo- and then woke myself up by accidentally hitting the strings oh God, and like making a really loud racket. But, but no, I've never slept with a guitar. Okay, second weird question: Do you own a toe chain? A toe chain? Like literally a toe chain, a heavy duty chain you could use to attach something to your car so that you could leverage the powers of your engine to haul it. Ah, of course not. Randy Bachman owned a twelve foot long toe chain that he started securing his guitar with if he ever left it unattended. A 12-foot-long... Yeah, he would secure it to the damn toilet in his hotel room. This is another quote. Quote, if someone wanted to steal that guitar, they'd have had to have ripped the toilet out of the floor. End quote. Seems pretty easy. You just now, go in... You... <laughs> listen, it doesn't matter... Get ma- a toilet out. It doesn't matter if you are... Remember this, like your mom would say stuff like this to you? Or maybe you've said this to your kids. It really doesn't matter... If you are intense and careful 99% of the time, if 1% of the time you are not. So 
in Toronto in 1976. He's at a Holiday Inn where all bad things happen to musicians. Surprised he was allowed to stay there. The road manager said, this is a quote from Randy Bachman, I'm going to take your guitar, check out of the hotel, and come back and pick you guys up. He took the guitar, he put it in a hotel room, and in five minutes, it was gone. Gosh. There's an irony here, right? Almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. A man guards his guitar with such intensity that of course it's going to get stolen. Yeah, because it's almost like he willed it to happen by not willing it to happen. And if it happened, did did he ever... Um, did he at, at some point ever try to find it? Was that like a concerted effort? Or are you, are you kidding? It becomes an obsession. So, yeah, so if, if Randy was really superstitious, if he thought that some of his success and the fact that he had this unlikely tale to tell about starting not just one, but two gigantically successful musical endeavors was all tied up in the possession of this magical musical instrument, his real life and his career after this theft will confirm his worst suspicions. Quote, with that guitar, I wrote many million selling songs. It was my magical guitar. And when it was gone, the magic was gone. As soon as, and I, you can look in the, in the books, man. You can look at music history. This is what happens. They are at the top of the world. This guitar disappears. And within a year, Bachman's life falls apart. Gosh. First, BTO starts fighting. He will walk away from the band. He will not only walk away from the band, he will be so pissed off, he will sell his rights to the name. His name! His last name is Bachman. And he sells the rights to it. Oh, no. Well, that's crazy. He's worth $10 million when he walks away. In the next four years, he will lose almost all of it due to a few bad investments in some musical projects he's working on and a really messy divorce, rife with expensive custody battles. Oh, gosh. When this guitar disappears, Murdoch, Randy Bachman's success and stability start to disappear. And it's hard not to notice the timing. Randy wants this good luck charm returned. So you asked, what does he do? It will become a freaking obsession. He will end up replacing this hole in his heart. Not by buying one Gretsch, Mark. By buying 350 of them. <laughs> He will amass the largest collection ever of Gretsch guitars. And he will start to tell the story of the theft and his obsession over and over and over. But nothing ever comes of it. Wow. Well, if 2019 had faded into 2020 like any other year, if 2020 had gone down in history as just another forgettable 12 months on the calendar, I think we'd probably end the episode here, and it would be very disappointing. Uh, Randy Bachman would probably still be longing for what he has long called his first love. I saw that in writing in lots of places. That 6120 Gretsch. But instead, I don't have to tell you that 2020 was not a normal year, and it found us all isolating ourselves. And so now we got one more side character into this story who becomes very important, and this is a random dude named William Long. William Long, also Canadian, um, and aside from the fact that he lives in Canada, had a pandemic experience somewhat similar to mine and yours, because he seems to have spent a lot of time listening to random music on YouTube. And at some point, he has this desire to listen to old Guess Who. And you know how the algorithm works. One minute you're listening to some random live recordings of No Sugar Tonight, 
And the next, you're face-to-face with some recording of Randy Bachman from 2018 talking about that stupid guitar he won't shut up about. And William Long is bored and isolated. And his wife has taken up this hobby of doing jigsaw puzzles on the kitchen table. It's driving him nuts. And he's like, listen, if you're going to do your puzzles, I am going to solve a puzzle of my own. Dang, dang. Dad, working overtime. <laughs> you son of a bitch. It's, it's so easy. It's like, it's just, you made it so dramatic for a minute. And I was like, screw this. So, I'm going to so mess it up. He has no connection to Randy, this guy, right? None. He's just a random dude. He's a normal fan-ish. Like, I don't even think he cares that much about the bands. But he does have a connection to the internet. And it's 2020. He's got nothing to do. And that's why suddenly this random dude is spending his spare time sorting through as many pictures of Gretsch guitars as he can find. This is a quote from William Long. I didn't really look for it because it was a famous guitar, Long said. I looked for it because I thought I could help him find it with the skills I had. Apparently, this dude's just sort of into conspiracies and and missing things. And, you know, just that's sort of a, you know, he's probably listening to True Crime Podcast or whatever. He says, I know nothing about guitars. I didn't even know how to spell Gretsch when I first heard the story. So that was the first thing I had to learn. And he learns it. And he starts this search by finding the video to this later period BTO song called Looking Out for Number One. Do you know this song? Nah. I, I did not. This is this is late period BTO. Just soak this in for a moment. Motorhead. <laughs> so this is pre-MTV, right? Because it's like the mid-70s. But there is this performance clip, and you can find it on YouTube, and it is in the show notes, uh, of the band doing a pretty bad lip-syncing slash like synchronized playing of this song. It doesn't, it doesn't look great, but um, it does exist. And in this video, uh, Randy Bachman is playing the Gretsch, and there's a lot of close-up footage of the axe. And it's a pretty rare guitar to begin with. I I think I saw somewhere in the research that there were 37 made in this year uh, of 57. But Randy has a unique marking on his. It's this small dark knot in the wood grain. And so William Long uses facial recognition software of some sort. No way. And he enhances the spot on the body of this guitar, the specific spot in the wood grain. And he starts searching for this instrument for like a few hours a day. Uh, first, he's looking at pictures, and then he starts pulling for sale listings from all over the world from the last few years. And he gets really good at this because he's seen this so much and he's blown up that wood grain imperfection so much that he really knows the uniqueness of this guitar by sight. So it doesn't take him very long to eliminate. So he just eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. That's not it. That's not it, right? And then he is looking at listings from a vintage guitar shop in Tokyo from 2014. This is 2020. But he's looking at a listing from 2014 one evening. And he fucking finds it. And it's six. It's a listing from six years prior. But it's from six years prior, so it's not current. Now, at least he knows what country it's in. So then he starts looking even harder within Japan. And he's on YouTube 
and he finds this video. So I, I know you can't see it, but this is a in-studio performance of a, like, it's like a Christmas song uh, at this Japanese radio station with this guy named Takeshi. Takeshi. T-A-K-E-S-H-I. And he's like a rockabilly guy. At one point, I saw him referred to as, like, the Japanese Brian Setzer, which I wonder if he knows people are saying that about him. I do, too. But, bro, this guy is playing Randy's guitar. So he's got to figure out now... This random middle-aged dude in Canada during the pandemic, how he gets in touch with Randy Bachman. <laughs> but he does it. He makes contact, and he doesn't have to do much convincing because he's found this video. And Randy is flabbergasted because he's literally been talking about this in interviews for 45 years. Man, that is so crazy. So Randy has a new challenge, a language barrier. How does, a, how does he convince a fellow musician on the other side of the world that he's that, that guitar you're using for public appearances rightfully belongs to me? And so for that solution, again, you can't make this stuff up. Randy just so happens to reap the benefit of yet another movie-like coincidence. Now, let's talk for just a second about Randy's offspring. We mentioned earlier a custody battle. One of those kids, a kid named Tal, T-A-L, Tal Bachman. You remember this guy? Yes, of course. She's so high, high above me. me. Yeah, that's She's so lovely. Man, let me just stop and say that um, 16-year-old Brian, God, he loved that song. Loved that song. Falsetto gets me every time. I'm just going to say. Okay, so. Great great song. Tal Bachman uh, married a Japanese woman. Can't make that up. And so he just gets to call his daughter-in-law and she makes contact and explains the situation. And Takeshi is sympathetic, but he doesn't want to just give up this expensive guitar that he bought because it did not, it was not cheap. Uh, I think he said he paid six grand or something for it, which is actually is sort of cheap for a Gretsch of that caliber. Yeah. It should have been probably twice that at least. But, Remember how I told you that Bachman had been obsessing over Gretsch guitars for years? Yeah, and he bought 300 of them. He bought yeah. 350 of them. Uh, he, he actually, in the mid-2000s, so way before this, he sells the whole thing back to Fred Gretsch, and it's in the Gretsch Museum now in the South. So you can see the 350 guitars. But because he knows guitars and knows the Gretsch guitars, he's able to call people and he finds what he calls the sister guitar. It's another, I believe it's also a 57. And he's able to replace it. And so they do a ceremonial concert. And this was just like two months ago. This was in July of 22. They did a ceremonial concert at the Canadian Embassy in Japan. And they made this exchange. There's videos in the show notes. You can actually watch them perform together. Of course they do, taking care of business. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Takeshi is quoted as saying something akin to, it saddens me to give up this guitar, but I feel like it's now my turn to be sad because Randy Bachman has been sad for 45 years. <laughs> and so 
Randy Bachman has his guitar back, which is super, super fun. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. Now, during this research, I got really into this video series that Randy started with Tao. So uh, another side effect of the COVID lockdown for the Bachmans is that they were bored. And so they started this YouTube channel called Bachman and Bachman. <laughs> and they came up with this concept, which was actually really clever, where they would each come to the garage each week and they'd bring four to five songs apiece and not tell the other person because they're both professional musicians, right? Yeah. And they would say, we're going to play these songs together. Tal's wife, the, the, the Japanese translator, is also a drummer. Uh, and so she's on the drums in most of these videos. And they just play everything from Jimi Hendrix to Green Day to whatever, to songs that they've written, to BTO songs, to, you know, whatever. And they call it Friday Night Trainwreck because they don't prepare for it. Oh, I like the word. That's, those are great. It was, it, it's really fun. And it's just sort of heartwarming because it's a dad and a son hanging out telling stories. And there's hours and hours of these things. There's like 50 or 60 of them, I think. And they're like an hour a piece. Um, I mean, you know, and it's like four or 5,000 people uh, were like sort of constantly on this channel. So it was like nothing crazy or huge, but created yeah. its own little community. And that's uh, like super cool. It made me, it made me feel good about the Bachman family. I'd like to go visit them. <laughs> well, that's nice that it worked out nice and wholesome. <laughs> it's a crazy and, story, man. It's a crazy rock, story. Rock and roll stories don't normally work out like they don't that. Turn, nice I mean, and, forty-five years later. I mean, yeah. you're so you're 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 past forty-five, but not yeah. by much. So, what if someone had taken something from you when you were like four, and you just got it back this year? That's the equivalent of what. Right. <laughs> what you if you that, got your childhood innocence back right now? That would be a forty-five year. Abs. Do you know about Do you know about Joe Perry and this happened to Joe Perry of Aerosmith? Uh, I do know it happened to Jimmy Page, but I don't think I know the Joe Perry story. The, the The interesting thing though is that those guys continued to do fine. What I find so interesting about the Randy Bachman story is that I sort of buy that the guitar was like his good luck charm because his right. life fell apart after that. Yeah, it's like this big hollow body guitar was this thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Joe Perry lost um, is a 59 Les Paul and he lost it. Um, he thinks in the divorce in 82. Oh, damn. And then it seems like you would know where it was. If you lost in the he, divorce, he, seems like you could find it. Well, he was Get able, out of the closet, just, Brenda. Well, well, the other thing was drugs, but <laughs> he did. Like, he did find out like someone bought it at East Coast guitars for like four grand there was a jazz guitar player that owned what? it for a little while. Then someone physically saw Eric Johnson, the, that guitar player, with it. Um, and then he lost it. And then he had the opportunity to buy it. And he couldn't afford it, um, oh, which is an amazing thing to think about, that Joe Perry from Aerosmith couldn't afford to do that. And then Slash got photographed holding it on the cover of a magazine. And Joe Perry like recognized it and was like, holy shit, Slash has got my guitar. And there was a like, I guess, an awkward conversation about, you know, he wanted the guitar yeah. and Slash didn't want to sell it. And it was yeah. super awkward. And then 35 years later, at Joe Perry's 50th birthday party, he was on stage with Cheap Trick and Slash walk like gave him the guitar. Oh my God. What an amazing story. At his birthday party. That's great. That's so, crazy, man. That's a, that's a great complimentary story to this one. 
only mine's really short and you had Chet Atkins <laughs> uh Tal Bachman was in there Takeshi <laughs> I oh. will say not a lot on Takeshi the the rockabilly artist uh I could not find much uh, in the English language on him I, there is a other guy named Takeshi who is a famous Japanese guitarist who has has died um but this young guy who is is photographed and in these videos with Randy Bachman I I couldn't find a whole lot on him other than that Christmas video but I mean it's just so interesting that it was trackable and it didn't just end up in some collector's house or in a museum you know I'm like it would have been very hard to find had there not been some sort of public use of it logged on the internet I mean that's not guaranteed there's people especially expensive guitars a lot of times are bought by you know people who treat them like pieces of art put them in their private collection I hope Mr. Bachman is at peace I'm telling you, if you if you have mixed feelings about Bachman, go watch these videos. He's it's very much like Jam Jam Grandpa. He's good times. Uh, if you want to get involved in the show, we are the Story Guys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for everyone who continually sends us letters. It's it's fantastic. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram. It's just Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, and you can tweet at Murdoch. It's at Hey, it's Murdoch. And until next time, keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.